0: Keep your Bible open to this passage here in John 1. We'll be looking at this in a moment. Join me in prayer before we come around to this passage and and dive into it this morning. Let's pray. Lord, what an exciting time of year. And there's a lot of reason for that. Oh, it's great to to see the uh, decorations throughout this sanctuary. It's good to see. Lights as we travel on the roads. Um, it's good to hear the Christmas carols and, and all of that. And, and yet, Lord, I pray that in midst of all the, the beautiful times of festivity and all that this reminds us of, Lord, I pray most of all that we would not lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John chapter 1 brings us right to who Jesus is brings us right to uh, that which is to be the object of our affection and what is, who is central to this whole season. And so help us this morning to, uh, oh, just to see some freshness around this season, freshness around the story that is very familiar to all of us, <clears throat> and that, Lord, we would... Um, grow in appreciation of what you have done for us. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do in our time around your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure you can appreciate this. Once in a, the rush of last-minute Christmas shopping, a woman bought a box of 50 identical greeting cards. She was in such a hurry that she did not even bother to read the inside of the card. She hastily signed it, addressed it, and mailed them to everyone on her Christmas list, 49 of them in all. Well, several days later, she happened to glance at the one card that she hadn't sent. She picked it up, and for the very first time, she read the pre-printed message inside. It said this, This card is just to say, A little gift, is on its way. (laughs) Whoops. We are reminded that God planned the Christmas gift of the Christ child before the foundations of the world were even formed. To the prophets in the Old Testament, the message was, a little gift is on its way. What nobody expected was that this great big God would make himself as small as a single fertilized egg, barely visible to the naked eye. The maker of all things shrank down and down and down, all the way to earth, being formed inside a nervous teenage girl. The one who knew no before or after entered time and space. God came down to earth. And folks, we have heard that so often, it hardly moves us. My purpose this morning is twofold. One purpose is to bring our sermon series on Jesus and relationships to a fitting close. Secondly, it is to deliver one of two messages appropriate to this season. And I bring these two purposes together with this one statement. As we celebrate the birth of this little one lying in a manger, the wonder of it all is the bigness of the one who came down to earth. As we celebrate the birth of this little one lying in a manger, the wonder of it all is the bigness of the one who came down to earth. And in the first chapter of John, the passage that was just read, John introduces us to the greatness, the bigness, of the little one in in Bethlehem. And John presents one of the most important accounts of Christmas without ever mentioning an inn or a manger or shepherds or angels. It never mentions Bethlehem or Mary or Joseph, yet indeed it is a story of Christmas. We could say this is the story behind the scenes. John takes us out of the world for a time to find out the real meaning of Christmas. I would go as far as to say we cannot celebrate Christmas in its fullest meaning if we neglect the truth which John chapter 1 presents. There are three questions that I want to answer from this text in John 1. First of all, very simple questions here. The first one is, what child is this? Secondly, what is the real meaning of Christmas? And thirdly, what do we learn here about Jesus in relationships? So first of all, along with the hymn writer, we ask, what child is this? You might figure that at first pass through John chapter 1, we should shorten that question to, what child? No child is mentioned here. Follow along with me. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, I am sure you have had this very frustrating experience of answering the phone to find a salesperson on the other ends. <laughs> and this salesperson assures you that you, he is not selling you anything But you know he is. Now, just walking through the mall, if you catch eye contact with one of the vendors, you will be approached with, can I ask you a question? (laughs) Now, my wife has this down quite well. She simply answers answers politely, no, and then looks away. I, on the other hand, (laughs) get drawn in. It happened again this past week at the mall. I fell for it. He asked, can I ask you a question? And then he asked this question. He said, do you have a special woman in your life? <laughs> trying to be smart, I answered, yes, I have several. Well, I do. My two daughters. I think my mom's pretty special too. I was trying to be funny, and he suckered me in and to stop, and believe it, but before I knew it, he was starting to do this little thing on my fingernail. I'm like, I need, can any, anybody help anything with this? No. The point is, the point is, they're trying to tell you something, but they tell you they are not. John here doesn't do that. You know right at the get-go where John is going. He is very clear. He immediately informs his readers where he's coming from and where he is going. We know what to expect. He's making the claim right out of the gates that the word, later identified as Jesus, was with God and is God. And John is so forthright here that many cults rather dismiss these words or twist them to fit their purpose. What child is this? John answers that with four statements right here in our text. It's beautiful. The first answer is, Is He is the eternal one. What child is this? He's the eternal one. John is saying, in the beginning, the only beginning that we know, the beginning of God's creation was the Word. Even more than that, when the beginning began, the Word already was. John reaches back to eternity past to speak of this child. Now, I admit, I struggled to get my mind around eternity past and eternity future. Verse 1 instructs us that there never was a time when Christ did not exist because the Word was continuing with God, is really the thought here. He is the Eternal One. He is eternally preexistent. He is eternally God. He is eternally the Creator. Verse 3 tells us that through Him, the Word, all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. Now it is my understanding that there are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy and at least 100 million galaxies in known space. That means that means that there is something like 10 with a slew of zeros behind it stars in space. Ten octillion. Yeah, I don't know what that means. I don't know about you, but that kind of thinking almost gives me a headache. It's so big. But I want us to recapture the greatness of Christ because our spiritual growth is bound up with the size of our vision of him. The more we see his greatness, the more we will grow. When we consider the greatness of Christ, nothing other than trusting him makes sense. He is the eternal creator. And as the creator, he knows just what his creation, his people need. He knows what it is that needs attention in your life and in my life right now. He knows the real need because he's put you together. He's made you. It was said of Charles Steinmetz, the mechanical genius and friend of Henry Ford, that he could build a motor in his mind. And if it broke down, he could fix it in his mind. And so when he designed it and actually built it, it ran with precision most of the time. One day, the assembly line, the Ford plant, broke down. And none of Ford's men could fix it, so they called in Steinmetz. He tinkered for a very few minutes... Threw the switch, and it started running again. A few days later, Ford received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. And so Ford wrote back, Charlie, don't you think your bill is a little high for just a little tinkering? And Steinmetz sent back a revised bill. It said, tinkering $10, knowing where to tinker (laughs) $9,990. Listen, God puts you together together. He knows where to tinker. The question is, can you trust him with it? Oh, the greatness of Christ. And to embrace that helps us to see the extent that God went to communicate his love to us. What child is this? He's the eternal one. Secondly, he is the revealed one. He's the revealed one. A child was drawing a picture, and the teacher looked over his shoulder and asked, What is it you're drawing? I'm drawing a picture of God, the little girl answered. And the teacher gently reminded the girl, honey, no one knows what God looks like. And she said, oh, they will when I'm through. <laughs> you see, Jesus Christ reveals God the Father. In the Christ child, we see God expressing himself. Interestingly, John chooses to describe this eternal revealed being as the Word. The word was a very important concept to the Jew. Throughout the Old Testament, it is recorded that God spoke. God has spoken in the past through prophets, through men and women of God. Now he would do something far more shocking. He would come down to earth. It's been expressed this way. The word did not become a philosophy, a theory, or a concept to be discussed, debated, or pondered. But the Word became a person to be followed, enjoyed, and loved. And I believe another reason John chose to call the second person of the Trinity the Word was because he wanted to emphasize the very existence of the eternal Son of God as for the sake of communication. File that away. We're going to come back to that in a moment. He's the eternal one. He's the revealed one. Thirdly, he's the rejected one. Verse 11 tells us, notice these words. He says, he come to that he came to that which was his own. Interesting choice of words. What isn't his own? He made it all. He owns it all. Well, it seems to be a reference to his own people, the Jewish people, who, generally speaking, rejected him as the promised one who would deliver them from their sins. So the end of verse 11 has these very sad words, but his own did not receive him. compels me to ask. In a crowd this size, have you received him? John provides one final statement of this child in verse 12. If you have received him, it says in verse 12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, when you received him, you became a child. Not his associate, not just his friend, his child. He's the rejected one, but he's also the saving one. Verse 4 reminds us that in Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. You see, since he is the creator of all things, he can offer life to the created ones. Jesus has the life we need. Jesus is the life we need. To not accept his offer of life, abundant life, is to continue to stumble around in darkness. The question then is for all of us, is he the rejected one or the saving one? An ill-prepared college student took an exam just before Christmas break. He wasn't ready for the exam, so he looked down at the questions on the paper in front of him, and he wrote on his paper, only God knows the answers to these questions. Merry Christmas, and he passed it in. Well, he got his paper back. The professor wrote on the top of it, God gets 100, you get zero. <laughs> what child is this? God's, John's given us the answers. God gets a hundred. Will you pass the test? Will you get a zero because you choose not to take the answers God has given to you? They're all right here. Will you receive him, believe on his name, become his child this Christmas season if you haven't done it? Maybe this is the time. What child is this? John outlines it pretty clearly. Secondly, what is the real meaning of Christmas? Christmas. Well, the Christmas story is all wrapped up in one verse here in the passage, verse 14. Notice verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God came down to earth. Coming down to earth is not about what was subtracted from His being, but what was added. Get that. He took on humanity. He became flesh. Verse 14 says he added, that as verse 14 tells us that, he added perfect humanity to his undiminished deity. That means that he cried in the middle of the night. That means he hungered for milk. That means he needed to be changed. God became flesh. God invaded our world. And verse 14 goes on to say that he made his dwelling among us. And you likely have heard that the literal translation of that phrase is God tabernacled among his people. In other words, God pitched his tent on planet Earth. God pitched his tent in your backyard. He entered our worlds. He's one of us in every way, yet without sin. He takes the full human journey, which to this point even God in heaven had not taken. Now, verse 14 continues to outline Jesus' strategy. Let me read it again. I want us to see this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, his purpose was to glorify the Father. His method was to be one full of grace and truth. His strategy, his strategy was to enter our world. He entered our world to identify with us. He entered our world to be that bridge by which God comes to earth and people go to heaven. Only because the Son of God became an infant can he reconcile the Father in heaven with the people on earth. He entered our world to never be a stranger again. God came down to earth how could an infant be the Son of God? But more staggering than that is why would the Son of God be an infant? The story is told of Joe Tory, who after playing baseball as a catcher, then went on as a broadcast announcer. Shortly after that, he was named manager. Someone suggested to Joe Tory that managing could be done better from high above the baseball field from the level of the broadcasting booth. And Joe Torrey says, no way, I'll have nothing to do with that. Why not? Why won't you manage from high above the playing field? Why do you have to be down there? And he answered this. Torrey replied, no, upstairs you can't look into the player's eyes. In similar fashion, God chose to come down to earth to the playing field to look into your eyes. Now catch this. Christ's personal communication strategy was incarnational. What I mean is, he didn't drop millions of bumper stickers from the sky that said, Smile, Jesus loves you. He sent a man. He didn't send an email or fire at us a bunch of Bible study books on how to find God. He sent his son to communicate the message. He didn't start up a bunch of Bible colleges and serve as president of those colleges. He spent time with people showing them God's truth and God's grace. He didn't pass out training manuals to train men. He invited them to live with him 24 hours a day. Jesus was down to earth. He ate with sinners. We see him as a child. We see him in the temple. We overhear the talk of the town. He's just a carpenter's son. We see him in the desert wrestling with temptation. He didn't just talk about love. He loved. He didn't just preach on forgiveness. He forgave. He didn't just give eloquent speeches on the need for justice. He got up close to the needy, the weak, the oppressed, and the downtrodden. You see, the incarnation is nothing if it is not personal. God loves you individually. He has read the contents of the card he has sent your way. He is the gift on its way to you. He entered your worlds. He entered your world of sin to die on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin and remove your guilt before, before a holy gods. God's personal communication strategy was to come down to earth to draw near to you. And believers, people of First Baptist Church of Westville. his strategy has not changed. He still sends men and women, young and old, to draw near to others. And so our final question to be answered is the one we have been addressing over the past few months. What do we learn here about Jesus and relationships? Over the past few months, through our sermon series, we have been looking at a sample of Jesus' interactions with people to learn how we can better relate to others. It's the final week in our series. In one way, it brings the whole series together. It's the bottom line. We see God's strategy in reaching people that ought to be our strategy. In the incarnation, we see that God came down to earth by taking on flesh and with grace and truth made visible the invisible God. He entered the world of sinful humanity in order to identify with the world and make known the very heart, life, and character of God. But there is a second incarnation, if you will. What is that? Well, Christ, who has given up his life for the church, nourishing and cherishing the church, to now make visible through the church the person of Jesus Christ in our relationships. How's he doing? We are the visual aids. A demonstration that the gospel is really good news and that it does speak to the deepest needs of the human heart. We, like Jesus, in his incarnation, must enter the world of sinful humanity and see the real need that is there and then touch them with grace and truth of the gospel. It's been expressed this way. Christ's bride is the church, people, and relationship to one another. God has designed your relationships with other Christians as the primary context in which his nature surfaces and becomes an observable, tangible phenomenon. Whether you like it or not, believers, many people are reading the revelation of God seen in your life and in your relationships. God's bride is not a person. It's people and relationships. So as we've come through this series... We come this morning to the crux of it all. Down to earth is the model to follow. He came down to earth that we might follow in the footsteps of the one who first crawled on the floor. And as we consider the great lengths that God went to communicate with us, to have a relationship with us, we too should come down to earth in like fashion. Come down to earth by walking in others' shoes. Down to earth by trying to identify with others' pain and with others' struggles. Down to earth by trying to understand where others are coming from and not just give a quick evaluation of where we think they're coming from down to earth by drawing near to others, getting up close to really see what it is they need, and not just what we think they need. The question all the way through has been, are you willing to enter into others' lives, into others' worlds? Will you be incarnational by allowing Jesus' life to be lived out through you, wherever you are? Shortly after World War II came to a close, Europe began picking up the pieces. Much of the old country had been ravaged by war and was in ruins. Perhaps the saddest sight of all was that of little orphan children starving in the streets of those war-torn cities. Early one chilly morning, an American soldier was making his way back to the barracks in London. As he turned the corner in his Jeep, he spotted a little boy with his nose pressed to the window of a pastry shop. Inside, the baker was kneading dough for a fresh batch of donuts. The hungry boy stared in silence, watching his every move. The soldier pulled his jeep to the curb. He got out and he walked quietly to over where the the little boy was standing. Through the steamed-up window, he could see the mouth-watering morsels as they were being pulled from the oven, piping hot. The boy salivated and released a slight groan as he watched the baker place these donuts onto the glass-enclosed counter. The soldier's heart went out to this nameless orphan as he stood beside him. And he said, son, would you like some of those? Oh, yes, I would, the boy replied. And the American stepped inside and he bought a dozen of those donuts and he walked back out to where the boy was standing. He smiled, he held out the bag and he said, Here you are. As he turned to walk away, he felt a little tug on his coat and he looked back and heard the child ask quietly, Mister, are you God? We are never more godlike than when we give. What can you give to others this Christmas season that is incarnational, down-to-earth, Christ-like? What gift can you give that is down-to-earth? Oh, that may mean you need to mend a quarrel. That may mean you need to dismiss suspicion. It may mean you enter the world of sinful humanity and you forgive someone who has treated you wrongly. It may mean you tell someone, I love you. Or you ask for forgiveness if you were wrong. Maybe it means you you turn away wrath with a gentle answer, or you give something away anonymously. You you get up close to someone in a nursing home. You show an act of kindness to someone with whom you work. Just give as God in Christ has given to you. And someone just might say, Mr., ma'am, are you Jesus? Listen to these words of this poem. Writer writes, Do you know, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? Do you know, do you understand that you treat me with gentleness? It raises the question that maybe he's gentle too. That maybe he isn't someone who laughs when I am hurt. Do you know, do you understand that when you listen to my questions and you don't laugh, I think, what if Jesus is interested in me too? Do you know, do you understand that when I hear you talk about scars and conflicts from your past, I think maybe I am just a regular person instead of a bad, no good girl who deserves abuse? If you care, I think maybe he cares. And then there's this flame of hope that burns inside of me and for a while I'm afraid to breathe because it might go out. Do you know, do you understand that your words are his words, your face, his face to someone like me? Oh, please be who you say you are. Please, God, don't let this be another trick. Please let this be real. Please, do you know Do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? Let's pray.